You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. And we've already prayed, but let us pray together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. We're not quite at the end of our series of sermons in 1 Timothy, but we can see the end from here. We have one sermon after this, which will be after Christmas. Uh, But the uh, reading today is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through to 10. Paul writes, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, may God bless the the reading and the preaching of his word to us this morning. Well, 1 Timothy is all about how we are to behave in the household of God. And Paul in this chapter deals with this important issue of of contentment, that sidelong glance, um, contentment. And uh, as he gets near the the end of the letter, he brings this, there's this contrast between uh, the false teachers, those who uh, lack contentment and think godliness is a a means of gain. That's verses 3 to 5, that paragraph that you've got printed on your sheet. And then then he urges godliness with contentment in the second paragraph, verses 6 through to 10. And there's many encouragements uh, and warnings for us this morning. So we'll start here with uh, Paul's words in this first paragraph uh, dealing with these false teachers. And he says at the beginning, teach 
and urge these things. And he's sort of summing up what he's said so far. We're towards the end of the letter, and he wants Timothy to teach and urge these things. And then he, he carries on with some more instructions, which Timothy is also to teach and urge. So that little phrase looks backwards and forwards, I think. And then he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, um, and then there's this sort of if-then clause, if anyone does this, then he, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, if anyone, well, there are people. We know he's already identified them in chapter 1. So as he gets to the end of the letter here, he's sort of coming full circle back to some things that she said right at the beginning of the letter when he talks about false teachers, those who are rising up in the church who are teaching uh, a different doctrine. Uh, we're not teaching the orthodox faith. faith. They started there, but they've wandered off. So he's already talked about those who um, were speaking um, of... Um, yeah, devoting themselves to myths and speculations. Remember those who were, uh, they were, wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't really know what they were talking about, those guys. Uh, and those who were denying uh, that God's good creation. They were downplaying uh, the importance of motherhood, things like that. So he's been battling with these people. They've been in the background, in a sense, as he's been then teaching Timothy in contrast uh, to teach the gospel, which accords with godliness. We've seen all his instructions in 1 Timothy about practical godliness, about the care of the elderly and of the widow, uh, honoring them, and all, all different areas of, of practical godliness. Um, and these, these false teachers, in a way, have been in the background, but then he comes full circle to these, and then they're, they're there in, um, in the crosshairs again from chapter 3 onwards. And so he says uh, they're teaching a, a different doctrine. It doesn't agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul here is he's really reaching into the, the medical bag for language here. The sound words really is healthy words. Um, he's talking about um, teaching which itself is wholesome and which then leads to wholesome lives and wholesome living. There's this connection here between uh, sound teaching, orthodoxy, and sound practice, orthopraxy. So this connection here, uh, so that the teaching of the gospel, he wants it to be healthy and sound, free from diseases, free from contaminants. And these other teachers, they had unhealthy teaching, which was then leading to uh, unhealthy practices in the church. And, uh, well, in Titus, he talks about teachers who come in and they're, they're actually their teaching is ruining whole households. So false teaching is a problem because it brings ruin to family life, ruin to ma marriages, ruins to, to individuals. So orthodoxy, orthopraxy, godliness, godly teaching um, go together. We see that all the way through 1 Timothy. And uh, these are life-giving words and they're to build up the individual and to build up the household of God to live peaceably together. Think back to Paul's great call for unity in the book of Ephesians. This, as this gospel goes out, one of the, the fruits of that gospel was to be people from very different backgrounds, very different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, bringing together into one body and then living at peace with one another. That is what the, the gospel of Jesus Christ does. 
Well, these false teachers, they had departed from sound teaching, from the gospel, and the, you can see the fruit of that teaching really in their, or false teaching, in their own lives and in the church, which is being ruined. So what are they like? Verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And we've seen this um, connection before. Uh, pride, vanity, and ignorance go together. Overconfidence and ignorance, those, uh, those things kind of, you don't think they shouldn't match up, but somehow those do match up, don't they? And here they are again together, puffed up with conceit and understand nothing, but they still have um, important teaching roles in the church. And with, there's this unhealthy craving, see the contrast, an unhealthy craving for uh, controversy and quarrels about words. This sick craving for controversy and sort of verbal fights. Now, Paul later will say to Timothy, look, you fight the good fight. He has to preach. He uses godly words. There's not a problem with, with that. But here it's the sort of craving for controversy and verbal fights. People who just uh, pick verbal battles for the sake of it, sort of verbal one-upmanship, the sort of thing which abounds, doesn't it, on social media, these keyboard warriors who go in and seem to spend all day with just uh, picking at controversies. That's the sort of idea. There's this craving, this lust for just uh, verbal controversy. Um, and they're just picking at this, picking at contradictions for the sake of it to prove they're so clever, subtle put-downs and all that, rather than seeking the truth. And I think we just see that. We see that in the, in the culture, but in the church, we also see it in the culture, don't we, at strange that uh, large, that debate and argument is used not for establishing truth, because we've lost any sense that there is objective truth. So arguing and controversy is just used to, to win and to do verbal battles and fights. And we've, in a sense, we've lost any conception that there is actually a truth, that you could have a disputation and a discussion and then actually arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is what we're after. But very often, uh, we're taught, and even through the school systems, you have to watch out for this. Kid, kids are taught sort of how to be persuasive and how to argue in order to win rather than in order to seek and establish things which are actually true, beautiful, and good. So that's these false teachers. That characterizes their false teachers. They want to win, but they're not interested actually in the truth. And their teaching produces envy, uh, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. There we are, envy. They see the influence or success of others in the church, maybe Timothy, maybe godly teachers, and they turn green. Here we have the sideways glance. And this is just, it's a constant danger. It's a constant danger for God's people, isn't it? You think through the whole of the scriptures. You know, why was it that um, Joseph was cast into the pit by his brothers? Well, that was out of envy. Why was it that the Pharisees so, were so opposed to the Lord Jesus when his teaching became popular? Well, it was out of envy. Why was it that the apostles were persecuted in the early church? Well, they're, they're doc people were listening to the apostolic doctrine and they were envious and hated. And you see, Paul runs into this in his ministry, doesn't he? In, in Philippians, he talks about those who are out of rivalry are uh, preaching the gospel out of envy. And so we see this is a, a constant 
temptation, this corrupt, sinful heart doesn't kind of get magically cured at theological college. And you have ministers of the gospel who come out and this rivalry and envy is uh, maybe well hidden, but it's characteristic of uh, many ministers. And so there's the, so these uh, corrupt teachers, they're seeing the influence and success of others and turning green with this sideways glance. And then uh, there's all kinds of friction, evil suspicion, um, and they're depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. Uh, their, their minds have become corrupted, really. The, the word used here to, to talk of being depraved in mind, it describes what a, a moth does to a garment in Luke 12, 33, or describes uh, a limb that is wasted um, away. So their minds have become, as it were, moth-eaten and corrupted. They've got some semblance. They're still talking about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but actually their whole thinking has become uh, corrupted. It's frightening, isn't it? Um, so Paul draws this really blunt picture of the moral evil which has gained hold in these teachers in Ephesus. And we think of these corruptions, um, but we know that these kinds of corruptions bubble up in our own hearts, don't they? Envy, the sideways glance. Um, and so Paul later, he says to Timothy, uh, flee from these things. He's talked about the, the, lo the love of money, and he says to Timothy, look, you flee from these things. So these things be a problem to, to Timothy, who'd had the, the greatest training, as it were. He needs to um, put this corrupt nature to death uh, continually by coming to Christ, by coming to the cross. And don't we, we need to continually be putting our own sin to death by taking our envy, by taking our covetousness to the cross, by confessing our sin to God. We're called, we, we pray each week, uh, forgive us our sin, forgive us our debts. Um, and we pray that the Lord forgive us these things and will be at work in us by the Holy Spirit. Um, as John Owen famously said, the theologian John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And these things are, are alive and well in us and we need the gospel. We need that gospel of Christ that we might live together in peace and unity one with the other. Well, then verse 6, uh, he turns to state this great principle about godliness, they're, they're using godliness as a means to gain. And he flips that round and says, no, 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 look, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He's using financial language there. Look, godliness with temptation, uh, you've hit the jackpot. It's great gain. It is great gain. And... Um, so you see that there's contrast here. They want to get gain. He's saying it is gain. And he really makes this great appeal to wisdom in verse 7. He says, look, we brought nothing into the world and we can bring, we cannot take anything out of the world. It's, it's a great uh, reminder for us. These words, uh, like at the beginning of Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's just a great reminder, isn't it? Um, that we can't take it with us when we die. Yeah, how much does the rich man leave when he dies? 
everything. You know, how much do we leave when we, do, we leave it all? Rich and poor, you know, we leave the same, we, we just leave everything. So you sort of think, you know, there's, there's a guy over here in a big house and a guy over here in a little house and a guy over here with a nice car, guy over here with a rubbish car, and um, they look with envy at each other. But look forwards at that little burial plot. It's going to be about the same size for everyone, isn't it? Um, it, that's where we look. We came with nothing. We depart with nothing. We just need to, to remind ourselves of these things. And Paul brings this great reminder here as he's urging contentment. Um, and Jesus said, didn't he, a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus, who was uh, the son of man, who had nowhere to lay his head. So, in all you're getting, get wisdom. In all you're getting, get wisdom. That's what we should be hungry. That's what we should cover. Cover wisdom. Cover Christ. That is where we should set our heart's desire. Get things of true value. Get things of true value. The things which are of little value in the world. And he says, Paul says, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. Now, really, food, the word for clothing there can be used for, for shelter. So I think he's just talking about the basics, food and shelter, food and a roof over your head, food on the table, roof over your head, the basics. We bow our heads, we give thanks for our daily bread. We give thanks. Now we have a great abundance, we have more, we have more than that, and we give thanks for that too. Um, and Paul gives thanks in the abundance of all things, but we give thanks for the basics, for daily bread, and when we have more, we give thanks. But we should be content with those bare necessities. Now, Paul is he's addressing here those who uh, have the basics. He's not addressing particularly those who are destitute, those who don't have enough to eat, uh, th those he deals with in other, other places, and he's already looked at the, you know, the, poor, uh, the poor widows who need actually financial support, and he's urged people to, to look after their elderly parents and this sort of thing. Um, so he's not talking about those without basics, but he's talking to those in the congregation who uh, don't have a load. Um, and just think of the, who they were in Ephesus as we looked last week at the bond servants, those slaves, and their masters. You think of this congregation in Ephesus, these wide disparities of, of wealth. Um, and just think how much the bond servant would be tempted to envy uh, his or her master for their position. Um, it would be so easy to be absolutely filled with resentment, with bitterness, to, to cover, then to backbite, and to slander and to give expression to that discontented heart. But that this congregation, by the grace of God, by the miracle of God, were to live together uh, as the household of God. Now, Paul does go on then later to talk about the rich and how they should act with generosity and all this sort of thing. He talks about that towards the end of the letter. But here he's talking about those who need to be content uh, with a little. He's urging contentment. Now, the ancients talked about contentment quite a lot. The Stoics talked about contentment. It's one of their favorite themes. Um, and it's, that's, that's the sort of the grin and bear it Stoicism, or, you know, just be, you know, life kicks you in the teeth and you just sort of take it. Um, biblical contentment is just much uh, richer than that, isn't it? It's much richer. It's much more about knowing Christ, resting in his sovereign care and goodness even through times of hard providences. And Paul speaks of this famously at the end of his letter to the church 
in Philippi, doesn't he? He says in chapter 4, um, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So sometimes he abounded. Sometimes Paul was sat there in, in a villa surrounded by friends, those who loved him, well-fed, perhaps looking out the lovely view over the Mediterranean and the skies were blue. And he enjoyed the abundance of those times, enjoyed that. But other times he was there stuck in a vermin-infested prison with nothing, with no friends. And he hungered. And he had learned to be content and I always think it's quite an encouragement. He, he has to say, look, I've learned this. This didn't come automatically. There would be times when, uh, when, before he was mature, when he was sort of um, crying out to God in, 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 in sort of unbelief, one presumes, in, in, when he was discontented, when he was uh, sinful in, in that. But he learned over time uh, the secret of contentment so that he might say with the psalmist, my soul is like a weaned child within myself. Um, so Paul, he urges contentment and then starts to talk about the danger of discontentment, verse 9 onwards, saying those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires or cravings. Now, he's not talking, he goes on to talk about the rich. It's interesting, he's not talking about the rich here. He's talking about those who desire to be rich. Um, they, they looked up, they just wanted what their neighbours had. They envied what their neighbours had. They desired it. And he says, look, they're falling into temptation. And verse 9, I think this just reminds us of the spiritual nature of this whole battle. Uh, Satan is at work. It reminds us of our need to pray Daily, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from envy. Deliver me, Lord, from envying what my brother has. Deliver me from envying his, his wealth or his position. Deliver me, help me. Reminds us of our, our need to pray of the, this spiritual nature of this battle. And then he says, well, they fall into this temp temptation, into this snare, into a trap. And the, the trouble is with that with a trap is you don't see it necessarily until you're inside of it and entangled in it. Um, think of, of Hebrews and saying, let, let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. We easily kind of get just tangled up, tangled up and um, jammed up with these things. And it may be that Paul's also echoing uh, Proverbs 21, 6 here. There's a proverb here which talks of those who get treasures by a lying tongue. Uh, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapour and a snare of death. So maybe there it's talking about those who, have, um, those who are uh, falling into a temptation and actually falling into the, that, those sorts of snares. But then it says they, they plunge themselves into many senseless and harmful desires. And notice again, this is about the inner life, about what's going on inside, those, those cravings, those heart's desires which are in view here. Paul is not so much looking at the stuff, he's looking at the human heart and how we uh, are, respond to these things. And, um, and that's the trouble with wealth, isn't it? It's a sort of 
you, if you set your heart's desire on money, you never have money enough. It's like trying to slake your thirst by drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. It's that sort of thing. And we know it's true, don't we? We know proverbially, proverbially that you have the sort of billionaires who die miserable and want more and more and more. Um, and yet we still find, this, uh, still find this hard, this craving. And again, this craving is not just a craving for the rich to get richer. It's a, a craving for those who, um, who don't have very much. And then we come to this famous verse, verse 10. For the love of money um, is a root uh, of all kinds of evil. Now, love of money is not the only root of evil. Um, other evils in the world which are not rooted in the love of money. But notice it is a root um, of all kinds of evil there. And the point again, I, the point here I think is that you think about a root is hidden from view, isn't it? You have this root, which people don't, you don't see the roots of a tree, but you do see the fruits. You do see what comes out of that. You do see that. And so it is with the love of money. You don't see uh, the root, which is hidden underground, but you do see the envy, the arguments, the, the, the bickering, and um, all sorts of strife, and so on. And you just think about, you know, how many um, sort of family, um, arguments and with wider family are, are the fruits of sort of finance discussions about finances and these these things just really think about the need for contentment within a household and how the opposite how discontent really can just tear apart families and households and relatives and can do such damage and remember Jesus when uh, that, that guy came to him and said you know tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, and you think, well, that's a pretty reasonable request. There's his brother who may have been defrauded from his inheritance, and Jesus said to him, "Man, who may be you, may me an arbitrator between you? Uh, you should watch out for covetousness, uh, for all kinds of covetousness, because a man's life doesn't have, uh, consist in the abundance of his possession." And you think the guy who's come to him has got a legitimate complaint, and Jesus is just saying, "Look, really, watch out here." for covetousness. And you just see in that situation, it's brother and brother. That relationship between brother and brother has been torn apart because of financial issues. And that is sadly just very, very common. Um, and so there's just this warning uh, for us, this, this root of this love of money. Um, and through verse 10, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. And you may know people, I, I certainly do, who have wandered away from the Christian faith because career has taken over and the love of money has taken over. Other things have just taken over. They've wandered away from the faith. And, and the pierce, it, it's, it's a sort of self-imposed um, injury here, this picture. They've pierced themselves with many pangs. And here's like a character from the Proverbs as well. Think of the rich fool who built barns and bigger barns and then his life was demanded of him and, uh, and the Lord said, you fool. Um, well, here's someone who's, the, the picture is someone who goes out into the garage and finds, um, finds a, a screwdriver, sharpens it, and then plunges it into themselves. You think, well, how stupid is that? You're actually going out and you're, plot you're trying and devising a means in order to hurt yourself. 
And he's saying, you know, why would he do that? Like, don't do that. Don't plunge. You wouldn't go and plunge a screwdriver into yourself. Well, the love of money, you'd be doing exactly the same if you let your heart get gripped with uh, the love of money. Um, that, that is what he's doing. So it's another example of just, this is really foolish behavior. And so how much we just need to pray that the Lord would not lead us into temptation. The Lord would deliver us from evil here. And so, um, and you think, you'll be able to think of many examples uh, in the scriptures of this. So Paul, he looks out at the congregation, people from these different backgrounds, and with great pastoral wisdom, he's urging, he wants, to, wants to, Timothy to be teaching them because um, he knew that there was an issue of covetousness and envy could just rip apart households and churches. And so he urges it, um, for, urges it for, for Timothy to be teaching this and commends contentment. Well, we must come to a, a, a closer as we come to a conclusion. Um, how do we draw this together? Um, I think one of the obvious objections to all this is that, you know, isn't this just um, all this teaching about contentment a means of keeping, keeping the poor in their place? Isn't this Marx's sort of opiate religion as the opiate of the people? Just keep the poor down in their place and the masters can do their thing. Well, it's, it's not that at all. Paul is not commending that. Remember, Paul was poor. He was a poor man as he's writing this. Um, and he is commending righteousness. And the Bible condemns uh, all kinds of oppression of the poor. Remember, particularly in the prophets, it's all the series of woes against those who join house to house and field to field until they live alone in the land. And he's going to deal with the rich in a moment. And so this is more about seeking righteousness and uh, contentment. So the Bible stands up against injustice. Um, but the Bible does speak very, um, very strongly against covetousness and envying. And you just think of just the damage that, that covetousness and envying does, not only household to household, but nation to nation. And just the seething envy and resentment that gets fueled, and political leaders kind of pour, pour petrol on this, it gets fueled. And then we just see looting and rioting and hatred just bursting open and wars start, don't they? This is a, just a massive issue. Um, and what can put an end to it? What can deal with envy in our hearts? What can deal with this sin? Well, it's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only the cross of Jesus Christ that can make a, a church family live at peace with each other. That's why each week we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to confess our sins. We need to have them uh, nailed to the cross and just remember that and to seek grace from the gospel. We need the cross. We need the gospel in order to live with one another. As the church grows, as people from different backgrounds come into the church, we cannot do that. We cannot hold together without the gospel of Jesus Christ, without this sin dealt with by Christ, and all our sins dealt with by Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we need, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that our nation needs. We cannot live together as a nation without tearing ourselves apart without the gospel of Jesus Christ. We think we can, but how's that working out for the West? Not terribly well at the moment. We need the gospel to be preached and made known. So uh, as we think about these issues uh, as in our own lives and our own need for the gospel, we should also be just praying for this gospel of grace to, to go out and be praying for the, the ministry of the church and for, for, for the ministers of the gospel and, and for 
those who are seeking to do this. And so it is the gospel that the Lord, that of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need uh, in order to live together peaceably. And let us praise God for his gospel and seek our Heavenly Father now in prayer. Let's pray together. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more.